Well, good morning, church. It is very good to be with you all today. Happy Mother's Day to you. And I say that knowing full well that there will be a variety of experiences of Mother's Day in and amongst all of us. But I say, happy Mother's Day. I hope that it is a day of blessing to you, regardless of what those experiences may be. For those of you who have cause for celebration today, praise God. We see you, and I hope that it is a happy and blessed day. For those of you who have cause for sadness today, I understand that. And we see you, and we share in that sadness with you, but also hope and pray that you would experience the blessing of the kingdom in a fresh way today. And for those of you, like many of us, for whom it is a mix of both, a bit of a mixed bag of celebration and sadness, we see you. Welcome to life in the kingdom, life which is east of Eden to be sure, and life which is not yet fully arrived in heaven. And in the midst of that tension, we wrestle and we struggle, but still I pray that the blessing of God's kingdom would be real and tangible for you today. I was thinking this week about the immense privilege that it is to get to open God's word with you all on a regular basis. It's not something I take lightly. It's a very humbling experience for me in my life. What a thing it is to regularly, together, humble ourselves and to stop and to ask, what does God say to us Today. And the best way to know that, though God does speak in a variety of ways, the, the best way to know that is through his revealed word in the scriptures. And so we undertake that exercise again today as we open our Bibles to Matthew 19. You see, we have a core conviction here at the Austin Stone, if you're new with us. One of our core convictions is that we are ruled by God's word. What that means is we approach the scriptures not just with a posture of interest, but with a posture of submission, because we believe that God himself speaks truthfully to us as we investigate the scriptures together. And so what we do this morning is we turn for a moment from all of the competing voices of the world. You've been listening to voices all week long, voices that compete to tell us what is true, what is false, what and who is valuable in society, what is upright, what might be beautiful, and then what is broken, and what is wrong, and how we ought to fix it. We turn from those voices for a moment, but we ask those same questions. We go together to the Lord and say, God, would you speak to us today from your word? And he does. And so that's what we're doing. As we crack the spines of our Bibles again, we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, an account of the life of Jesus that we are becoming very familiar with in our prolonged week-by-week -week study. Now, I'm pleased to let you know that we're actually entering into the final turn of our study of the Gospel of Matthew. But as I sketched it out over the last week, that means it's only gonna take us 18 more months or so. But it is the final turn. It's a long turn and into a headwind, but it's the final turn. I promise you we're making an approach. I love the adventure. I know we joke about how slowly we go, but I love the adventure of giving God lots of room to speak through his son and by his spirit as he reveals his son in the word. So all of that said, Matthew 19.30 is where we will be. Here's the context, and yes, context matters, it always does. 
Jesus has turned, he's headed towards Jerusalem where he knows he will suffer and die at the hands of unjust rulers. He's made that abundantly clear to his followers. On the way, he's given some of his hardest but some of his most beautiful teachings of what it looks like to live a true life in the kingdom. He has told us, hey, in the kingdom, we pursue sinners who sin against us. We don't just live and let live. When your brother sins against you, you go and tell them their sin. And if they don't listen, you bring some others. And if they still don't listen, you tell it to the church. Why? It's loving to pursue the lost and to bring them home into Christian community. In the kingdom, then, when people repent, he went on to say, we forgive them. To what end and to what standard? Well, as Christ has forgiven us. And so he forgives them every time when they turn. Is it seven times? No, it's 70 times seven times. It's an infinite number of times that that we allow sinners to turn and to repent and we forgive them. In the kingdom, we honor the covenant relationship vows that we take. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago and we do all we can to not break those. We take the promises we say before God very seriously and we don't wanna get in between those promises. And then last week we looked at this remarkable truth of kingdom life. In the kingdom, it's back to front in terms of ease of entrance. In the world, the rich get in easier. They get to cut the line into all of the most important rooms. In the kingdom, the rich have the hardest time getting in. It's the poor who are more easily able to understand poverty of spirit, and it's those who have a poverty of spirit who, are the, who most easily enter into the kingdom of God. And so for the rich, it's harder for them to get in than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's the context of what Jesus has been teaching us. And it's in that context that Peter has pushed back and asked a question. He said, but Lord, what, what about me? What about us? What about my faithfulness? Won't we be rewarded? We left everything for you, God. Uh, We've been so good, we left behind businesses, friends, families, futures. Surely we will get rewarded in this life handsomely uh, and in the life to come. And what we see here in this text is Jesus' response, his continuation of his response to Peter. He said, last week he said, yes, Peter, in the age to come, you will have rewards waiting that you can't fully comprehend. But I really need you to get something into your heart and mind if you're gonna ask the question, continue, what about me, God? Will you give me what I deserve? Will you give me what I have earned through my following of you? Here's how Jesus responds. He says, but many, verse 30, who are first will be lost. So be careful to stand in the front of the line for reward, Peter, because many who are first, they'll be lost. And the last, first. Now Jesus says this exact phrase twice in 17 verses. Now, uh, if you study just kind of literary constructs and how uh, teachings are put together, that's an important structure for us. And he wedges a parable right in between this repeat statement. He's doing something when he does that. He's telling us, hey, the point of the parable that you're about to read, I've already told you what it is. And so we don't need to scratch our heads when we read the parable today and ask, well, what on earth does that mean? Because when you read some parables, you're like, "Um, that's made it worse, not better, Jesus. I don't live in an agrarian society, so I'm not really sure what you're saying right now. Well, Jesus is gonna say, I'm gonna give you the ending. I'm gonna give it away. I'm gonna tell you what it is. Then I'm gonna explain it with a parable. And then I'm gonna tell you again, dum-dums, all right? That's what he's saying to disciples, not you folks. You're so enlightened um, and so smart. We only need to be told things once by our Lord. But the disciples, they were struggling, right, to, to, to get this. And so he's gonna tell them twice this phrase, many who are first will be lost. And the last 
first, right? Before we read it, I think it's important to note some of the things that I think Jesus was preparing Peter and the disciples for. You see, this isn't the first time that Jesus has taught them this lesson, not by a long shot. But the disciples' alarm at Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler and Peter's questions about rewards in this life for his obedience reveals that they still don't get it. And Jesus needs them to get it because he knows what lies ahead of them. What lies ahead for Peter? Why does he need to get this lesson? Because Peter's gonna, at times in his life, question if God is being fair with him and with the other leaders of the early church. Why? Things are gonna happen that are gonna be so confusing to him that he's gonna need to come back to this lesson and remember, he's gonna need to be reminded, they're gonna need to gather around in their group and go, no, remember, Peter, Jesus said last first, first last. Oh, okay, I get it, again. What what lies ahead of him? Well, they're gonna see Jesus treated as the last. They're gonna see him treated as the least, and so they're gonna need to remember his kingdom teachings as they watch him suffer and die. They're gonna see Gentiles and pagans brought into the kingdom of God and granted a grace and dignity in the early church that none of them saw even as remotely possible. My friends, you must remember that that, that these are a bunch of Jewish men following Jesus in a Jewish context with a Jewish worldview, and the last thing they expect, to be honest, is for a bunch of pagans and Gentiles to be brought into the covenant people of God, and yet it's gonna happen, and Peter's gonna need to remember they were the last, now they're the first, we were the first, now we're the last. This This is how the kingdom of God works. If you've read Galatians chapter two, And if you've read the book of Acts, you know that Peter is gonna struggle with an understanding of the Gentiles receiving the same grace that the Jews had received from Jesus. He's gonna need to remember this lesson. And then listen, they themselves, all of these disciples are going to be treated as the worst of the worst. I know in in so-called Christendom, in in so-called kind of Christian culture, we've made obedience to God a sure and certain pathway for upward mobility and certain acceptance in society. This was not the case for the apostles. None of the apostles receive acclaim for their faith, reward for their service, or wealth for their faithfulness to Jesus, none of them. Most of them end up being martyred. They will receive widespread hatred even from the people they are serving. Paul describes the early church leaders as the refuse of the world, as pieces of garbage tossed aside by society. That was their reward for following Christ faithfully in this world and they wouldn't have persevered if they didn't remember the last will be first and the first will be last. Okay, with that in mind, Let's look at this parable. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Jesus' parables. It's incredible. It isn't hard to understand, but there are one or two contextual pieces that I'll add for us as we go. You ready? Here we go, verse 30. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Verse one of chapter 20. Four, so this is linked, right? That's why we we divided the ego, but the chapter divides in a different place. (laughs) That's that's sometimes rather arbitrary, right? The chapter divisions, the verse delineations weren't things that were in the original uh, canonical recordings. That's something that's been added in later, and they're helpful. But sometimes you just gotta let the logic flow. So Jesus gives this answer, and then he says four. So what is he doing? He's connecting it to what he has just said, right? So this is a description of him saying, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now vineyard is often used to speak of the people of Israel, God's covenant people, the vineyard, right? This is, this is who they are. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, this was a fair 
day laborer's wage, he sent them into his vineyard. They're gonna work a full day from sunrise to sunset and they'll be paid one denarius that is fair in the context. And going out about the third hour, that's 9 a.m., right? So the first hour is 6 a.m., so when the sun comes up, the third hour is 9 a.m. This is how time was measured in that season. He saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So these are people who haven't been hired on the first watch. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. He doesn't even tell them what he'll give them because they're not as certain they'll get a denarius. Why? They're not gonna work the full day. And that's the full day's wages. So they, at this point, they're desperate. They're going, well, whatever he decides is just, he's gonna be better than nothing. So we're in his hands. And whatever is right, I'll give to you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour. This is midday, right? And the ninth hour, this is 3 p.m. This is the fool who rolls in late on the group assignment and still gets credit for it, right? This is, this is not fair in any kind of pure system of equity. He did the same. And about the 11th hour, this is 5 p.m. The sun's going down. They're starting to clean up all the tools. They're starting to wind down the day. He went out and he found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. What does that mean? They've been rejected. No one wanted them. They weren't selected to, you know, to come and work in the vineyard. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, at this point, there's whispers going through because those hired at the 11th hour are going like, he's made a mistake. He's overpaid us. Do we tell him? Do we tell him? Do we tell him? Don't tell him. Don't tell him. Denarius for an hour's work. This is insane, right? This is incredible. Now, what happens to the rest of the workers down the line? Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Why? They're doing little math equations in their head, and they're going like, if it's a denarius an hour, I'm due 12. That's what I deserve. That's what I should get today. But each of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us oh the horror of that who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat we've worked hard these fools arrived here they haven't even broken a sweat but he replied to one of them friend I'm doing you no wrong did you not agree with me for a denarius take what belongs to you and go I chose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first will be last. My mom likes to remind me of the fact that I was a very cute toddler. She says I was a very content little boy. It's hard to imagine now, right? Because I'm kind of a mix between melancholy and angst. <laughs> when I think of the past, I'm melancholic and sad. When I think of the future, I'm full of angst and I'm sad, right? And so I'm a great hanger. I'm a lot of fun um, at, at a party. It's not my fault, Generation X, grunge music, all of that stuff um, kind of shaped my, my, my worldview. But I'm not like the most kind of happy-go-lucky sort of guy. And I'm working on it, right? I'm trying to have the hope that comes 
comes from the kingdom of God. Um, that, that should actually be part of all Christians' experience. My mom says when I was a little guy, I was super happy. I was the third born son in the Leicester family. So I've got an older brother who's eight years older than me, and then I've got another brother who's four years older than me, and then there's me, and then there's my younger sister, and then we had another, uh, another younger brother um, who grew up with us as well in our, in our house. And so uh, there's five of us, I'm slap bang in the middle, number three, right? Now, the third kid is most likely to be a psychopath, right? And the reason for that is they kind of left to their own devices. You kind of figure it out. The first kid, you're super anxious. Second kid, you're like, well, we didn't break the first. Third one, you're like, I don't know. Where is he? I've got no idea. And at this point, my parents really wanted a daughter. They've told me that. And then on the third try, they were like, oh, so now we have to have another one. What do we do with this one? I don't know. Uh, just let him kind of roam the streets. And so uh, that's kind of what I did. And I was pretty content, except when anyone else was getting something, I had a repeat phrase. It was my first string of three words that I strung together and my mom said it was the most common phrase I used in their home. It was this, what about me? What about me? And so when my brothers got something, I was like, what about me? My mom said I was so dumb that I didn't even realize sometimes it was discipline being dished out, right? I just saw attention. And so sometimes my brothers were being disciplined and I'd be like, what about me? And my dad would be like, all right, okay, line them up. Um, but I was just so obsessed with what was happening to other people and would I get my fair lot? Now that's quite cute when you're a chubby little kid crawling around on the floor. It's not so cute when you're an adult, right? And yet, it is one of the defining phrases of my life. I can be content in my lot until I start to look around at what other people have. And then the fundamental question that bubbles up in me, not just in my human interactions, but in my interaction with the divine too is, but what about me? Are you being kind to me? Am I getting what I deserve? Are you being fair with me? Is life working out for me? This is the fundamental question that Peter has asked Jesus and Jesus answers him with this parable. What about me? Jesus goes, well, the last will be first and the first will be last. So careful about wanting to be first. Three observations from this parable today as we constantly ask God, what about me? Are you being fair with me? The first observation is the kingdom of heaven has a different economy of value. The second is our response to that economy determines our contentment. And the third is our contentment is ultimately determined by our view of the king. Let's go through them quickly. The first one, the kingdom of heaven, this is what Jesus is describing, has a different economy of value. Friends, there's so much cultural and historical context going on in this story. It makes it difficult for us to easily and readily grasp the full weight of Jesus' point. But this scenario of day laborers standing on a corner hoping that a landowner would hire them was a typical one in the ancient Middle East. And it's one that resonates with me deeply because it's still regularly witnessed in Africa. With the large gap, the highest Gini coefficient in the world in South Africa where I'm from, the large gap between the rich and the poor, those who own the means of production, those who own property and those who don't, is startlingly wide. And so on any given day in Johannesburg where I was raised, you will see people standing on street corners looking for a day's wage. And they're the most vulnerable people in society because they're going, I want to work, I want help, but I'm at your mercy. I'm at the mercy of someone who doesn't necessarily have my best interests at heart. And so people will pull up in 
pickup trucks. We call them buckies, right? Buckies, you're welcome. So next time you see a truck, go bucky, right? It's a, it describes it. it. looks like, that's what it looks like. It's a bucky, right? And so we would arrive in a bucky and we'd load a bunch of guys on the back and, we'd, and people would drive them off, right? And it would only be when they got to the site that they would figure out what work they were expected to do, what they were gonna be paid, what the conditions of that work were. You know how vulnerable you are in that situation? You're so vulnerable. Someone has absolute power over you, but you need them desperately in order to feed your family. And so these were the most vulnerable members of society. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven's a lot like that. Simply standing on a street corner every day and hoping that a landowner needs you. You've got no ownership or connection to ownership of the land, which was the ultimate source of financial security of the day. They didn't have the stability of a steady income, no guaranteed minimum wage. And even when they were hired, they were powerless in the negotiation of a fair wage because the landowner could always just get somebody else. We see this at play in the parable as it's only the first workers hired who have any idea of what they will earn. They know I'm getting a denarius. The rest are like, I don't know. We'll wait and see what happens, right? They trust the landowner, why? They're desperate. They have nothing else. They literally have nothing else. Now this straight away sets us on edge. When I read this, I go, whoa, that sets me on edge. Jesus is starting by saying that the kingdom has a dynamic of power that we are not necessarily comfortable with. Now wait, I can sense you getting nervous as our culture is rightly obsessed with power and who possesses it and who is denied it. It's a fascinating and very necessary conversation. But Jesus here is starting to say to us, in God's economy, before we get into human power dynamics, which are essential again, we need to remember this big truth. In God's kingdom, there is only one who has absolute power, and that is the owner of the vineyard, the master of the house. God himself has the power. The rest of us don't. Even if we like to wield various degrees of servitude over each other in our wickedness, which is what we do. In this story, we're all actually day laborers, standing outside, hoping against hope that someone will take us. And the great news of the kingdom is that someone has. The master has sought us out. Even when we were standing idly by, out of his generosity, he gave us dignity and worth and purpose and a place in his great work in his vineyard. What grace. You see, friends, the world operates off a certain economy, but the kingdom operates off a fundamentally different economy. Value in the kingdom isn't determined by your effort. Value in the kingdom is determined by grace. It's all grace. It's the loving benevolence of the master that we all need. We are exposed and vulnerable and weak in our sinful state. We don't like to talk about ourselves this way, but the scriptures do. And he comes and he gives us generosity through his son. This is the gospel. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 2. I know in some of our congregations, we, we looked at this text last week with the rich young ruler, but it's important to note again, don't let this wash over you, friends, listen. Listen to how Paul describes our state before the Lord. He says, you were dead. <laughs> you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You couldn't work your way up, you were dead. You needed resuscitation, you needed resurrection. You didn't just need betterness. You didn't just need effort. 
You were dead in them in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, just doing the things we wanna do all the time, never doing the things we ought to do, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen, this is uncomfortable, and I'm not an angry preacher today, I'm a humble preacher. This helped me this week to remember grace. We were by nature children of wrath. What that means in in our fallenness, we were set in opposition to God. We need to remember that. Like the rest of mankind. And then one of the greatest phrases in all of scripture. But God, remember your estate, remember your powerless base. But God, being what? Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses what did he do he made us alive together with Christ it's by grace it's by grace it's by grace you have been saved and even more has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say, listen, therefore you must not boast. (laughs) Why? You've been saved by grace. You're a desperate day laborer standing on the corner in the 11th hour saying, will anyone take me in? And the master said, come and enjoy the dignity and the blessing of this vineyard. I will overpay you so much because I see you and I value you and I want you as part of my kingdom. Friends, we must start with poverty of spirit. Understanding who we are We must have a good anthropology which says we are beloved and we are fallen. (laughs) That just in our humanness, yes, we're made in the image and likeness of God, but we've tainted that image through sin and we're children of wrath like the rest of creation, but in grace we've been loved and made alive together with Christ. I can sense in this room, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the rooms having this stream today. This is quite hard to take in, right? I promise you it's one of the keys of Christian joy because then you start to go like, it's all grace. Anything I get from the Lord is grace. It's all mercy. It's all his love. It's just so humbling to remember where we fit. Beloved, but by the grace of God. Therefore our value is determined by God's grace and not by our input, not by our effort. And this is the point of the story. Jesus is saying, I know some of you will follow me for the whole day. (laughs) You'll you'll come out of the womb making accurate confessions of the creeds. You'll go to Christian-only school. You'll go to Christian-only colleges. You'll obey all 10 commandments even though you're in a sorority, right? Like it'll be unbelievable. It'll be incredible. You'll just be so faithful. You'll get married young. You'll stay faithful to that spouse. You'll obey all day. It'll be incredible. You'll work hard at good works. You'll be faithful in your disciplines. You'll say no to many of the world's invitations. You'll be the equivalent of those hired in the first hour. Great, well done. You know what you get? Grace, (laughs) enjoy it. 
The point of this parable and the story of the prodigal son for that matter is that you need grace as much in your religious obedience as someone does in their irreligious rebellion. Love what Dane Ortland said in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly. He said, the mercy of God reaches down and rinses clean not only obviously bad people, but fraudulently good people, <laughs> both of whom equally stand in need of resurrection. Friends, some will enter the kingdom at the 11th hour <laughs> through the side entrance, a little bit tipsy and with a mysterious rash, right? Sliding in, even in the midst of perhaps long seasons of disobedience. And you know what gets them in? Grace, it's all grace. We need to remember this because it humbles us and it stops us from measuring God's kindness with the measurements of this world. We stop asking, is God being fair? And we start answering, no, he isn't. He is being gracious, which is better by far. Friends, I promise this isn't to make you feel worse. It's to remind us how powerful it is that we are beloved in spite of our human efforts and free, free from the tyranny of self-promotion, self-righteousness, self-obsession, the tyranny of so much self. Grace is the economy of the kingdom. It isn't fair, it's grace. Everything we have is a gift. We can't earn it. We can't make it fair. I love what William Still once said. He said, the greatest, highest, and most practical truth of our life is that we are recipients. <laughs> we are recipients of grace. And yet many of us strive as if we aren't, which brings me to the second point. I'm gonna blaze through these so quickly, and then you're gonna extend me grace in the kingdom of God for running over time, right? Second one is this. Our response, so the economy of the kingdom is different. Value is determined by grace. Our response to that economy determines our contentment. You wanna be happy in this life? Well, it's how we respond to grace that will determine how content we can be. A knowledge of the scandalous grace and kindness of God in his kingdom economy seems to lead to two sets of responses in the parable. Gratitude or grumbling. <laughs> Those hired at the 11th hour are nothing but grateful. God's generosity is overwhelming to them. It's unbelievable. But the warning of the parable is for those who were hired first <laughs> and had worked all day and then were then dissatisfied with the wage that they received. They did all the right things. They obeyed all the rules. They played the game. They worked within the constructs of the system. Didn't they deserve better treatment from the master? Two things to notice here quickly about the discontent of these workers. Listen, let, let the spirit pry your heart open a little bit right here. First, they were absolutely happy with their lot until they compared it with others. They were absolutely satisfied with the denarius for a day's wage until they saw someone else getting more on a relative scale. You see, comparison is the enemy of contentment. It is the thief of joy. It is the destroyer of happiness. The first time that there's any unhappiness with the arrangement is when they see those who only arrived at 5 p.m. when all the work has already been done and they get given a full day's wage. Suddenly, the denarius that made them happy before now seems cheapened. They were happy a little while ago, but the thought of someone else having the same for less effort corroded their contentment and left them grumbling. Friends, how many of us are currently unhappy with our life, and a lot of it has to do with us looking into the lives of others and establishing a comparative sense of worth and contentment off of what they have rather than of what grace God has given to us. When Jesus asked them, do you begrudge my generosity? He's using an ancient Israeli idiom. You know what he's saying to them? 
Are you looking with an evil side eye? <laughs> That's the literal translation. Evil side eye. Something that corrupts your eye. You're happy when you're looking at God and going, oh man, God, you've just been so kind to me. And then suddenly you scroll through and you give evil side eye. You start to go like, but it's not as cool as what they have. And I've worked harder than them. And I'm more faithful than them. Why do they get that? They haven't even obeyed. I know they haven't obeyed the rules. They pretend to obey the rules, but I know. I know. Why do they get that? Man, my kids are wonderful. Daniel and Katie, such great kids, so content in so many ways. And a couple of years ago, so we'd, we'd moved to Austin, we'd converted our rands, which is South African currency, into dollars, which means that I, I currently was the proud owner of $3, right? For all of my years of labor, I was worth three bucks. And so it took us a while to kind of find our feet and to settle in. But one day we decided to give our kids a big surprise, right? A big rejoicing celebration. Guys, we're here, it's great. We bought them a trampoline, right? First, I made sure I was good friends with an orthopedic surgeon <laughs> and had that all kind of squared away in the kingdom economy. And then we bought them a trampoline and they went bananas. They loved it. They ran outside and they jumped up and down on the trampoline, squealing, laughing. And Sue and I stood inside because you can't go outside in Texas because you'll die. Um, so we stood inside and we looked out and we were like, aren't we doing such a fantastic job? Look at our content little children, right? They don't realize we only have $3 and we borrowed $400 to buy this trampoline. Thus, the American lifestyle has begun. Um, and so we watched them jumping up and down and suddenly I see them start to peer over the fence of the neighbors and the jumps get a little less excitable and they start calming down and then Daniel starts to try climb up the side to look over the neighbor's fence and Katie's trying to climb up on him and they come back in and they are furious. Katie's got a double teapot stance going on. She is mad at us. And I go like, what, what, what's wrong, Nunu? What's happened? She goes, the neighbors? I'm like, yeah. She goes, they have a pool. Their contentment with a trampoline was short-lived because the trampoline allowed them to jump up and see the neighbors had something we didn't have. They thought the trampoline was awesome until they considered the possibility of a pool, right? I'm counting my $3 and knowing that I owe 397. I'm like, I can't, I can't swing this one, guys. We're just gonna have to climb over the fence late at night um, and swim in their pool unbeknownst to them. This is the only way I can solve this problem. Content until they looked over someone else's fence. Happy with their lot until they compared it with someone else. Friends, comparative-based worth and joy is nowhere to live. Spurgeon once said, oh beloved, take heed of comparing yourselves with others. For this is not wise. Come to Christ and look at him. And then your faults will be apparent. <laughs> You'll realize it's just grace. Secondly, let's notice about these, these friends. They moved away from grace and started to believe that reward was the result of effort alone. They weren't just unhappy with what they had gotten, they were unhappy with what they had given in order to receive what they had. They said, we have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat, and I get it, I get it. Friends, some of you think you deserve better from God than what you're currently getting. I prayed, but he didn't answer. Well, not in the way that I hoped. I stayed holy, but he didn't give me the companion that I wanted. I stayed faithful, but people went faithful back. I was humble and I was met with hubris. I worked hard, I made responsible decisions, but others are flying ahead of me in career and wealth. I think we have sold Christian obedience as something it never claimed to be. A guide to successful living by the standards of this world. Friends, we obey because we are his. Not because of what we'll get, but because we love him. <laughs> 
because of his grace. We don't obey in order to get trinkets of this world back. We obey because of grace, because we're his. And this is the last point and the real key to contentment in the kingdom. We won't be able to be content with grace like this and measures of reward and worth like this unless we trust the character of the king. And so the last observation is this, our contentment is ultimately determined by our view of the king. I love the three questions with these I'll close that the landowner asks in the parable. There are three questions that I imagine God asks of us today. First one is, did you not agree? The second one is, am I not allowed to do what I choose? And the third one is, do you begrudge my generosity? First he asks, he says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I love this, he calls him friend, which we know from the language is actually, a, a, it's a dual tone that a professor would use with a student when they're correcting them, right? It's like, your friend, you're my friend, but you're a dum-dum, right? Like, I, I need to pull you along towards greater faithfulness, right? And the question he asks is, did you not agree? In other words, God is asking to us when we draw this out, have I not kept my promises? And so, friend, if you feel shortchanged by God, is it not worth asking today? Has he not kept his promises? Sometimes we place him on the hook for promises he never made to us. But has he not kept his promises? When he said he would never leave you nor forsake you, has he not kept his promise? When he said that he would send the wonderful spirit to be your counselor, has he not kept his promise? When he said he would remove his sins from you as far as the east is from the west, has he not kept his promise? Has he, when he said he would provide all of your needs, has he not kept his promise? Second, he asks, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? <laughs> Oh, friends, this is one of the most profound questions of the universe. Can God do what God wants with what is his? He can and he does. <laughs> it's confounding when we try to get our heads around God and we start to realize there's no way to do it. Why? He's God. <laughs> and we're not. I love working with people who come with questions and go, but God cannot do that. I'm like, he can do whatever he wants. It's the nature of being God. We're contingent. We're, we're dependent. He is not. He is the only truly independent being in the universe. God sits in the heavens, the psalmist tells us, and he does what pleases him. But we can trust what pleases him. Why? He's magnificent. Paul writes about this in Romans 11. I'm getting worked up now. Now no, I'm going even longer. But Paul writes about this. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He's, he's writing about one of the most confusing doctrines in the world. And what does he, what does he do? He worships. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Oh, that's a good question. Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? No one. You cannot put God in your debt. He doesn't owe us anything. Anything we have from him is a grace. You're alive today. What a grace, another day to repent and to enjoy the kingdom. What a grace. Here's the phenomenal news. He does what pleases him, and what pleases him is to save us. That's what he chooses. He can do whatever he wishes, and what he chooses to do is love us. The rest is nothing compared to that. If he chooses to withhold some of the things of the world from us, what is that compared to what he has chosen to give us? Lastly, he asks, okay, stay with me just for this last little bit. Do you begrudge my generosity? 
I've explained already that this question is an idiomatic expression asking, have your eyes become evil, right? Have you grown bitter against God because you think he has dealt unfairly with you, our friend? There is no joy in that posture. What about me? Well, we are the last. (laughs) We are the last. And he has brought us in. We are such unlikely recipients of grace and yet we have been given it all. How grateful we should be today for the grace of God. That doesn't mean that we don't face sufferings and trials and confusions in life with honesty and vulnerability. No, we don't glibly gloss over those things, they're real. We do face them and we must. But we view even those things, listen, even those hardships, even those losses, we view even those things through the lenses of God's unbelievable grace. Because the alternative, the alternative would be to suffer the distorted vision of an evil side eye of effort-based and comparative-based worth and acceptance, and that is a path to joylessness. And so we do it for our own joy. What about me? I am beloved by the master of the vineyard. It's all grace, I did nothing to earn it and yet he's given to me kindly, he's invited me into his kingdom. It is the 11th hour and he has paid me and will continue to do so way more than I could ever be worth. Oh, what grace. Will will we be those who enjoy his grace today? Or will we continue to begrudge the generosity of our great king? Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true. I believe that through the spirit it can be helpful today. I can't persuade anyone here of anything. I don't possess the skill set, the power, the eloquence, the wisdom. But your word does it. Your word does it again and again and again and again. And so I pray, Father, today that your word would not return to you void, that it would accomplish its purposes, that it will crack open some of our hard hearts. Some of us are mad at you, bitter at our lot, and it's because it's been hard. I pray today we would see the grace of your call, of your mercy, of your coming kingdom, of your current preservation. You've kept us. You've given us dignity and value and worth. It's the 11th hour. We're standing out in the corner on our own and you called us in. You've blessed us with your son. I pray that our hearts today, today, would overflow with generosity and as a result, joy would abound. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.